FTBD is proudly brought to you by Black Dog Coaching, the only online fitness and nutrition company that work exclusively with people in the mental health space. While other fitness and nutrition companies focus purely on looking good, Black Dog Coaching offers full spectrum coaching that incorporates fitness, nutrition, mindset, habits, routines, and lifestyle choices to support positive mental health. So if you're battling the black dog, there's two things you need to do. Number one, contact your GP and arrange a mental health care plan with your mental health professional. And number two, contact Black Dog Coaching. Because while a mental health professional is a very important piece of the puzzle, it's just one small piece of the mental health pie. For the other 90%, Black Dog Coaching has got your back. For more information, check out www.blackdogcoaching forward slash information. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of FTBD. For the uninitiated, that is Fuck the Black Dog. This is a podcast that is all about mental health, uh, the pros, the cons, absolutely everything. And we have an amazing guest for you today. If this is your first time tuning in, you've actually hit the jackpot. Uh, for most people, this man needs no introduction. If you don't know his name, chances are you're either a millennial or a communist. Either way, you need to rectify that immediately. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my immense pleasure to introduce Mr. Gary Angry Anderson. Welcome to the show. <laughs> a millennial or a communist. I'm not yeah, wrong, that's, though. <laughs> that's something that actually would come so easily out of my own mouth because um, uh, and my kids, you know, like, I mean, most fathers are a constant source of amusement for their kids anyway, regardless yeah. of whether they've got a public profile or whatever, but you can imagine the, the source of amusement that I've always been for my kids. Like <laughs> when they were little, you know, we'd go out in public and, you know, people would talk to me about the photos and all that kind of shit. And so they found that hysterical, right? That's amusing, right? Like, you know, like, cause they, they, struggling, they were struggling to understand the concept of, you know, well, dad's famous or, you know, well-known, whatever, like you put it. Yep. But, um, um, I used to explain to them that I wasn't famous, I was infamous, but that's another story. <laughs> but, um, no, well, I'm, sure, I didn't, I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit of that during this, uh, during well, this book, actually. You know, the last thing you want to do is, is, is years later, you can say, you lie to us. You told <laughs> us this, you know, like I didn't want any of that comeback. But yeah, uh, I didn't lie. I these, these days, um, well, these days they find it my political views and my my views on you know the larger picture i mean not only what's happening to us as a population in our own country but what why and how that relates to the rest of the world etc so they're always amused by whenever i refer to someone from the left as a comma or a communist because <laughs> that's such an extreme thing right so yeah and they know my background, you know, I grew up in a labor household. I grew up in a unionized family, my grandfather and um, two of his sons, uh, not my biological father, but two of his other sons. Yep. And indeed my, my younger brother, who's uh, rest in peace, um, he was unionized for years. And, uh, but I, I drifted away from the labor having been brought up as a, you know, like a working class in a poor area, blah, blah, blah. I grew up in Melbourne in a place yeah. called Pasco Vale, and that's sort of pretty easy. That's pretty well documented. But um, I drifted away from, from the left politics 
and I spent years in the middle. Yeah. And um, the more that I spent there and I was looking at both sides and I suppose, I suppose I was in a sense having two bob, well, you know, each way or I was sitting on the fence. I don't know, but yeah, I found my, I woke up one day and found that I drifted very, very much to the, to the right. <laughs> Easy enough done in this day and age. Now, uh, for all the guys who are just tuning in, before we actually get into the nitty gritty of it, uh, as always, we do have a, uh, a bit of a caveat, a bit of a trigger warning. So some of the content that we do discuss here, uh, some people may find it disturbing. They may find that it triggers uh, some issues with themselves. If that is the case, obviously, nobody's twisting your arm and forcing you to stay here and listen. But if you do get triggered, take the time to ask yourself, what is it that is actually triggering you and what can you do to actually to help that situation? Don't just let it get the better of you. Take the time to analyse it and work out what it is that's triggering you and what you can do to work on that. Um, so many people know, you know, people know you as the front man of Rose Tattoo. They know you as, you know, the bad boy of rock. You're known for your political affiliations. But I would argue that very few people know Gary Anderson, the man behind Angry Anderson. Um, and that's sort of uh, what we're going to be covering off on today. So you did mention that you grew up uh, down in Melbourne. Uh, you actually had quite a very challenging uh, upbringing. Is that correct? <laughs> uh, just, you know, define challenging. I mean, I, I had a difficult childhood. Um, um, my mother's Mauritian and um, my father met her, he, uh, my biological father, Colin was um a, a jockey and um he he was holidaying that's where you get your height from yeah that's really from <laughs> well mum's mum's even shorter she was i think, <laughs> I think she reached four ten or four eleven that was her yeah, maximum true. but um yeah they married in mauritius and he brought her home and you know she's dark um doesn't speak english she's fiercely roman catholic and introduced her to his father and yep. and and his mother and his siblings and um, his father and other male members of the family were masons. So um, they rejected her uh, from day one because because of all those. Yep. Uh, she was foreign. You know, she didn't speak much English. She was uh, dark, and um, and uh, so and we lived uh, we lived for the first six years of, of my life. Once, once she birthed me um, yep. in my grandparents' home, and we were my mother and I were largely rejected by, um, you know, the head of the family, family, my grandfather, and he, from what I've learnt from other relatives, he, he, um, he, he did not like mum associating with the rest of the family. Uh, he was ashamed, embarrassed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In fact, uh, I was told a story some years only less than 10 years ago by uh, an aunt that was rapidly becoming uh, very aged and, and the onset of dementia. And she said um, something, a story I should have told you as a, as a, a young man, she said, um, your, your father was told by his father that um, when, when my mother birthed me and I was able to travel because all travel in those days, well, most travel was by ship. Yeah that he was to send my mother and myself home and, okay. um, and dissolve the marriage. So suffice to say that was a, uh, I would have, a, in therapy, I've dealt with the fact that children absorb what goes on around them, even at an extremely young age, which is yeah, something yeah. that we've, we've learnt and we have to take notice of. And, and 
you know, like alter our behaviour, if you like, when we've got very young children. Because there was, up until sort of 30 years ago, largely held belief that the children in, you know, up until they were three or four or five years old were sort of oblivious. Well, they're not. No, they're so both. I would have been aware of this this isolation. I would have been aware of the, the, the bad vibes, so to speak. Um, at around about the same age, about five or six, of course, um, um, I was uh, victimised by a pedophile. Yep. So that that happened, and uh, not long after that, or we figure, you know, try to put a time frame together. Around about six years old, uh, we moved out of my grandparents' home, and Colin. Um, um, built uh, a house in a, uh, an emerging suburb, which was Pasco Vale, part of Coburg. Yep. On the, in the northern parts of the, because um, uh, I remember when I, when we first went there, we lived in a caravan for at least a year. Yep. And, um, and they built uh, the house. And um, I remember making friends with um, kids in the street and the house next door was already built and they were a very large family. And they were very good to mum, and because um, Colin was away a lot, yeah, which was good because you know he was an extremely violent man and violent towards her and and myself, but um, more emotionally violent towards me. Like he, you know, he he really, um, you know, like he 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 made it very difficult for me to to even have any sort of relationship with him. But he wasn't prepared to have a, a loving relationship with. Myself. Um, uh, anyway, ten years later, my brother was born, and they were able to form a far better relationship than I actually had with Colin, my biological. But was that like a in, nuts after everything you'd already, you know, by that point you'd already been a victim of sexual violence, a, a victim mm. of physical violence, uh, mm. a victim of you know emotional abuse. Was mm. that neglect? Was that like a massive kick in the guts to have a brother coming along and then have them? connect straight out the gate the connection that you obviously were never given you are the first person apart from the therapist and um, um, a woman in my life that's been in my life for in the most recent years yeah to actually be able to articulate that as, as a for as a, a, a sight into the person and yeah, I remember mum told me the story. We laughed about it for years and years, but she told me the story that, you know, she brought my, um, you know, like mum's missing for a few days and while she's in hospital having a baby. That explains, um, you know, because 10 years younger than I, so he yep. was born when I'm about 10. Yep. Um, I'm just sort of beginning, you know, like the belly, uh, you know, the, the changes that were being made. And so anyway, he, he arrives home with mum and uh you know i'm not allowed to go into the room because the baby's asleep yep uh mum spends a lot of time with the baby blah 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 so uh there's no um there's there's no there's no sort of giving me some place soft to fall like yeah yeah parents didn't know about that stuff in those days plus the fact i didn't have a loving relationship with my father now when when our first was born roxanne um she was five years old when Galen arrived and, you know, I was well prepared and, and as well educated as I possibly could be for that occasion. So I doted on her and, and she didn't 
didn't she, she she the transition for her was like she focused on her younger brother so there was all this outpouring of love from her and her mother and i but you know we we still bathed we still i still helped her get ready for school yeah um you know I, we still went for walks in the park we walked the dogs together you know those kind of things so she didn't she wasn't neglected or pushed to one side anyway getting back to the story mum tells this great well I've lost my mother to dementia, but um, uh, she told this great story. It took such great light. She said, uh, one day I wondered where you were. And she said, and all of a sudden, you've appeared with a port in hand and, uh, and dressed in your son, like my Sunday go to meeting clothes. <laughs> and like, uh, righto, I'm ready to go. You don't want me anymore. <laughs> so, you know, I'm ready to go. And, and, and mum said, and she had the wisdom, as mothers do. And she sat down and she said, all right, let's, let's just talk about this. And she said, um, why are you going? And I said, well, you know, you know, you've got a new baby and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was then that she realised that, you know, that she, she had been neglecting me. But, um, uh, you know, because it's only natural to spend so much time with a new baby. Yeah, yeah. So then I started to be included in bath time, um, she taught me how to change his nappy, yeah, okay. uh, how to prepare his bottle, you know, put it in a saucepan with water and heat it up. And so I got included. So I, she rescued me from what could have been an otherwise re very traumatic situation. Another isolation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I'd already come to the point where I thought, I'm not wanted, I'm not needed. There's, there's the, new, the new version. It's getting all attention, right? So I was couldn't form a bonding relationship until my mother quite wisely included me in in the you know the process of looking after this new uh, that I soon learned it, affectionately. This this is yeah. my brother, you know. He's, um, so yeah, and it's very very illuminating because it was quite traumatic to uh, and and of course you don't realise these things or you do realise these things until much later. Um, and there's been several uh, periods of my life where, like when I was like, you know, uh, considered a vagrant and I was, you know, partially living on the streets, et cetera. Um, um, I, I was sent to a facility once to, for a 76 hour assessment and I was diagnosed and it was because of my vagrancy, you know, cause I was yeah. sleeping rough. And um, when I was picked up, you know, I was, I was drunk. I was, and the police sort of said, well, where do you live? And I said, well, you know, I've left home, blah, 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 which in those days was fairly unusual. So they did the right thing, the coppers. They, um, they took me to um, the Selvos and uh, it looked after me, you know. Yeah. And, but, but, you know, part of it was because I'd been arrested, if you like, for vagrancy. The stipulation was I had to do seventy six hours of observation, and I was diagnosed then as as a massive or massive or manic, yeah, uh, depressive. And um, they, and of course, then the, the psych people at this facility uh, wanted to know my background, et cetera, et cetera. Um, anyway, suffice to say, they took me home. Mum was so happy to see me, um, and it was you know very much a, a tearful reunion, but. Um, that, you know, that was in my teenage years. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So anyway, during years and years, I've, I've sort of been in and out of therapy or I've had experiences with therapy. But um, 
uh, leading up to 2000, uh, in the end, you know, from 96 uh, to, I went away, I did a, a trick uh, for television across Kokoda. And that just, pff, uh, the Kokoda experience is so traumatic, physically, emotionally, spiritually. I don't think there's an intellect involved, but, you know, intellectualized process. Everything? Yeah, eh? You just found the lid just came off everything? Oh, mate, it was like, and that's why I recommend the experience for so many, anyone that's suffered trauma. Because yep. it worked for me. So it'd be like if I found a new wonder drug, I'd say, well, try this too. But, yep. um, you know, and I've had met a lot of, you know, my motorcycle club is uh, is the veterans. Um, used to be Vietnam veterans, and so now we're just veterans. Yeah. And so many of members my age have done Kokoda. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of young veterans that like, either aren't serving anymore or are still serving. And they are either going to do it or they've done it. And yep. it's a way of, because what it does, it physically reduces you to the lowest level, like the right. lowest, yeah. uh, you know, that you can go. So it rips you apart physically and it destroys you mentally, stroke emotionally. And, and the wisdom of that is that when you reach rock bottom, you've got somewhere to stand. Why do you think they call it rock bottom? I like that when you hit the right. Bottom. See, so it's somewhere firm and solid to stand. That's the way my interpretation. I think I like that's that. why the saying came into being. My, you know, me thinking about well, rock bottom. Yeah. You hit rock bottom. You, you can't go any further. Yeah. So you stand up on this firm foundation, but then you can rebuild. Yeah. And that's the point. You know, every time, whatever it is in your life, knocks you down. It does that because the wisdom of the divine is such that it, you have to be knocked down so you can get up. Yeah. Because you can't a, get up if, you've if never you're been already up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, we, it's like there's, we, no, there's no growth without discomfort. You need to experience discomfort to actually grow as a human being, to grow as a leader, to grow in any capacity. There's an element of discomfort. If you never leave your comfort zone, you absolutely. never change. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I remember... Um, um, all my sons, well, both my sons now, the remaining, but the three of them were all, uh, they had they had common things in, right, music, obviously. One of the things they've always had, which they inherited to, from me, apart from the music, um, is a fascination with the military. And they've always, they've grown up with my association, uh, you know, with, with my club and, and you know friends right and a yep. lot of a lot of my close mates are in the club or or um or are bikers right yep. and so a lot of one percenters which you know i've got a lot of friends that are one percenters um and they're ex-military as well yeah um uh but you know they've got a anyway they've got a fascination for for all things military. And I remember watching this movie um, years ago, which I then said to them, watch this. And it was about, it was, you know, like one of those sort of, um, um, you know, Marky Mark sort of type things. And, and but they were seals. Yeah, uh, Lone and Survivor. I, it may have been actually, it may have been. Sorry, he was the- but, um, There's a part where, where, they're, where they're in field you know, engaged, but they have flashbacks to training. Yeah. 
And, um, you know, like 300 of these blokes and 60 survive, right, out of 300, which is like any special forces, um, uh, which is why there's not too many women in special forces, but let's not get into that. But, um, the <laughs> you thing about it is, worms. Don't do this to me. <laughs> no, exactly, no. But, um, you know, there, there, there would be the odd female that, that had enough grit yeah, and, absolutely. you know, testicular fortitude, you know, spiritually to yeah, do yeah. it. But anyway, during this flashback, you know, they're laying in the water and they're doing all the sort of, all the stuff that they do. Um, and, and that's what, it, you know, that's, that's the, the wisdom in that training is to reduce you to that level yep. where you've got nothing left. You're so then you have to find something. And it's the yep. person that finds that. They're the ones that get the badge because yeah, absolutely. Remember, remember the uh, there was a movie about the spacecraft being used called uh, called the right stuff. Yeah, and it was the same thing. It was about astronauts. So when when you want the best out of yourself, um, it, it, the time to find that because life never gives without take and never takes without giving. It's the wisdom of the divine, you know, the, yep. the creational process. Um, so once once you've lost something or, or something's taken from you, it's not all about loss. And what you have to do is you have to find, and it's there. And the, and the amazing thing about it is that we're all imbued. We all have the same capacity as everybody else. So there's not one person created that doesn't have the stuff to do it. Now, physically, and mentally, when people, you know, in the in their SEAL training or whatever, when they break down, that's not their moment. Yeah. Their moment in that moment is not to have found that within themselves. You see, well, because of the special ops thing, this is going back to the military thing, they can't have that person who hasn't found that yet or doesn't find it during the training. Yeah. That doesn't mean they never will. Yeah. You know, it's like that's people that deal fine. with... Um, Depression, and I do a lot of public speaking, mainly about uh, surviving the experience, uh, because my survival is fairly well documented. Um, my journey is survival. Um, so, and I get asked to do a lot of public speaking about that, particularly about like dealing with depression. And one way or another, and I never knew this as a child, I had been dealing with depression since. Um, I was, as you say, it's difficult for me to say, use the word attack, but I was attacked. But, um, yeah. um, but when I lost my innocence, if you like, when I lost my childhood, yeah. and even, even, even a, a, healthy, a healthy growth through adolescence and young manhood, because it's all twisted and distorted. Yeah. You know, your sexuality is twisted and distorted. Your appreciation of, of love and, and tenderness and, you know, that's all been brutalised to the point where, you know, you're left pretty much not believing in these concepts. And the saving grace, of course, it, and I've said this, you know, ad nauseum over the years, was, was mum because she never, she never swayed, she never wavered or swayed in her affection and, and unconditional love. So, yeah. and I didn't learn to appreciate that until I was a grown man. Yeah. Now you were saying before about every time life takes something away, it gives you something else. That it's a, that it's a back and forth. And it actually works. We were discussing this the other day when we jumped on the phone for our first chat. Mm. And we we're talking about uh, music as an art form and art being an, being an expression of pain. So obviously 
you had your innocence taken from a very young age, but from the hardships that you faced from a young age, they fed into your creativity and music being a creative outlet and a, you know, an artistic channel for you. So all your early life, you experienced pain and you experienced hardship. And that obviously led into, you know, a troubled uh, adolescence. But then that fed into, obviously, Angry Anderson, Rose Tattoo. You found a creative outlet inside of music. Tell us a little bit about that transition from the child that you were and the adolescent that you were and the troubles you were going through then into Rose Tattoo and finding music. When I do public speaking, I usually start out by saying, uh, thank you, uh, you know, my name is Angry Anderson, but I've already been introduced as Angry. I said, you know, like a good place to start is possibly like one of the most asked questions of myself over the years since the early 70s when I became nicknamed Angry. Yeah. Uh, how, do I, how do you get the nickname Angry? Why wasn't it, you know, something else? Like, what, you know, why wasn't it, well, at school it was Mouse because I was, you know, there was nothing of me and I was just little. But, um, um, when I joined the Vigilantes um, in my uh, late teens, early twenties, which was an outlaw motorcycle, they they couldn't have anybody in the, in the ranks called Mouse, so I got nicknamed <laughs> Rat. <laughs> yeah, okay. That was that was temporary as well. But anyway, that's another story. But you know, and, and that's what happens. And I'm glad you mentioned adolescence because it's an, again, it's another key moment in your life even though it lasts two or three years but puberty uh, transforms a human being from one thing to another and it's a transitional period so it can't just happen overnight it's a gradual moving into and a gradual moving out of and and that such is the um the the, the gentle way that nature or the creational process wants to take you on a journey so nothing happens just like that except uh, you know, the things that happen in our life, like loss, you know, your father dies or your mother dies or, you know, you lose a child, whatever. Um, and that, they're sort of shocks at moments, right? So trauma moments. But with adolescence, and I learned this in therapy, um, and I completely endorse therapy for anyone that wants to have a go at it. And, and you can make it work for yourself as long as you're honest. Yes. That's the key thing. You have to be honest. And you have to trust. You have to trust this person. But during adolescence, you can, I could have gone either way, right? I could have withdrawn further in and gone and kept seeking darker and darker places, um, which is, you know, it's kind of like um, the abused person syndrome, but typically abused woman, she keeps ending up with the same kind of person you're like, who abuses her. And she goes, why, why is every bloke that I meet abuse me? Well, because you look for that. I mean, it's a tragic thing to have to understand, but it's a true dynamic within psychology of, um, you know, like when you go into psychotherapy, you explore these things. And uh, we do, you know, us repetitive offenders, so to speak, we keep looking for the, for the you know, the same person. Yeah. Hoping we'll get a different result. Now, sooner or later, you break the cycle. Yep. But anyway, getting back to adolescence, the thing is that um, I could have become darker and darker and darker or I could have done what I did do. Now, I was taught violence by Colin, <laughs> physical violence. I watched him uh, treat my mother to physical violence and abuse. And it made me, you know, 
apart from the other things that happened, I, I, I was a sad child, a very, really, you know, inwardly, I mean, sadness was in there as most of us try to deal with it and, and nature helps us deal with it, shut it down. Yeah. You know, uh, the reason I know that repressed memory syndrome is real is because I suffered from it. I probably do to a degree still, but I did greatly until I broke away from it. But during adolescence, I could have become sadder, but the transformation for me worked because it made me demonstrably angry. So I had a rage in me that came out through music. And that's good because otherwise it could have just manifested itself only in a physical sense, or I would have become an emotional abuser like Colin. Yeah. As well as a physical abuser. But I didn't. So I, I used my rage and I fueled that into music. And it, I became known um, long before I was Angry Anderson, I became known in musical circles as being a very physical, I've always been a very physical uh, performer. Yeah. The first and time and you actually, can tell. The first time I, mean, I actually it, saw you was at your 50th birthday bash. It was Newcastle Workers Club. Uh, I think it might have been 99 and you're playing with uh, the Angels and the Screaming Jets three of us in one night at Newcastle Workers Club. I'm pretty sure it was like your 50th birthday or something like that. Just going back yeah. a bit. <laughs> yeah, 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 really. Yeah, and then I saw oh. you again. You are you were the opener for Motorhead on their, on their last Australian tour as well with Airborne. That was Airborne and Motorhead. That was the second time I saw you. Yeah. I remember you looked pretty spent at the end of that, actually. <laughs> I, I just, you know, the thing about... In the old days, uh, we, you know, we, we used to fuel ourselves with alcohol and a lot of chemicals. Yep. Um, but these days, you can't allow that uh, because, you know, it, it interferes with the process. And I, I remember, like, to illustrate, I remember um, the van got back together again and we'd been playing for a couple of weeks and we're always, this is like, um, uh, you know, in the... In the after the Guns N' Roses first tour. Yeah. So it would have been in the early 90s. And I remember sitting in a, in a room when late, late, you know, drinking with, uh, with Pete. And I said, it's, it's fucking, it's going great, isn't it? And he goes, he said, yeah. He said, this, I'm, he said I'm having the best fun. Uh, this is the best, you know, the best fun we've had with the band, you know. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, because we're all, we're all pretty much sober compared to what we used to be yeah, like. Yeah, okay. And he said, um, I can remember everything. I can remember every gig. And he, he um, and I, that started to dawn on me in those days too. And that was part of the, um, the sobriety thing was that you actually were living in the moment. And yep. what I didn't realise when I was addicted to alcohol, drugs, um, that it denied me, it anesthetised me from pain, which is the reason that, you know, most of us get into that sort of yep. stuff. Um, but what, there was a price to pay. And when, when my daughter was born and I had to give up drugs and alcohol and bad behaviour, it, what it, what it then, it allowed me to find that, well, I can do this anyway. Yeah. I don't have to have, you know, a, a, a big head full of speed or Coke or whatever. I don't have to, uh, you know, drink a bottle of spirits. Uh, and, and, and there was no, there was no, there was no willingness to sort of like live up to the legend, if you like, or live up yeah. to the, you know, people used to, you know, like they say, people go to 
to rock gigs to see who's going to survive. I mean, I remember, <laughs> no, it's true. Like in the old days, you know, people, I yeah. remember Pete saying to me, he said, you know, people come to see if you're actually going to survive the experience. And um, this is, you know, when, when I was sort of in the latter years when I was arguably at my worst. And um, these days, uh, I, I get the same the same vibe, the same kick, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't keep doing it. But um, I get to the end of the, the gig and, and I'm, I'm in the same physical state that I used to be in the early days, but because it was the ravages of alcohol and drugs. Yeah. Now it's just pure, it's a commitment to on 100% energy. Yeah. And I've got an hour and a half to explain my whole life, if you like. Yeah. Every night of the week, like when we were on tour, like overseas, you know, we play every night apart from maybe one night a week off, sometimes two, but no more than that. And yep. so you've got to, you know, because you you have to make every you have to make every uh, performance count because it may be your last. Yeah. Because you know you don't. There's no such thing as a promise of tomorrow. There's a dream of tomorrow, but you know, there's no promise. Life yeah. doesn't say, I guarantee you this. Guarantees you nothing. I think... And uh, you think about... Hmm? Sorry, keep going. Well, if you get up the next day, that's another gift. That's, a, that's another chance to, you know, live the best you can, do the best you can. But there's no guarantee you're going to have that. So every time we perform, it's, it's not present in your mind like oh this could be the last gig but that's spiritually i know that that's how we go on stage treat every um, like it's your last because if this is going to be the last you know people are going to remember it i think um especially given recent circumstances inside of your life i think that do you think of that um so for people who don't know obviously you lost uh one of your children uh was it two years ago now no, just over a year. Well, it'll be a year. It'll be two years in November. Two years in November. Yeah. So I think that's a prime example of exactly what you're saying with regards to, you know, no promise of tomorrow. With everything that you've been through in your life, with, you know, the childhood, with the battles with drugs, the battles with alcohol, um, people might the not bad know. behaviour. The bad behaviour, all <laughs> the bad behaviour. You know, you've got your life, you know, together to a point where you're living clean, you're living, you know, for your family. And then a tragedy like that just comes out of left field. How did that, I can't even, as a, I'm a father of three myself, so I can't even fathom how anyone copes with that. And especially, you know, being as recent as it is, how, how do you get through that on a day-to-day -day basis? Denial. Denial? Um, <laughs> I'm very, very fond of saying that the denial is not a river in Egypt. Um, <laughs> I didn't think of that. I just borrowed it. I, I, in all honesty, and uh, the only time that I've actually spoken about it <clears throat> uh, publicly is when, when my daughter and I went and did Denton. Yep. Um, I, I'm, I'm only dealing with what I have to at the moment. And, and that apparently, according to all the experts, and some of them are parents uh, that have lost children. Um, <clears throat> particularly to, to, to violence, homicide. I mean, whether you lose a kid in a car crash or a, a drug overdose or a surfing accident or drowning or 
whatever. Um, but but to, to in an individual's case, and this is what we all understand as parents, the manner in which they die can't actually or taken, as we say, it's a softer way of, <clears throat> of putting it. Um, that's a that's a personal thing too. Loss is loss, you know. Someone's pain can't be measured more or less than somebody else's because that would be condescending in a, in, a, in a sense. It would be so. You know, a person's pain is a person's pain, but <clears throat> there's no denying the circumstances. You have to deal with that, um, and I haven't. And I, I, I. When I say I refuse to, I choose not to. Until until the whole um, legal process is is over and dealt with, you know. But I I I have not asked for, and I have told my children and my friends, if you know things about how he was killed, you know, I know the bare necessities. That's all I want to know. Yeah. Now, I could ask for more detail, but I couldn't deal with that as yet. I'm still finding uh, that thing yeah. uh, that's going to help me deal with this, um, knowing that, of course, um, you know, I'll be dealing with this for the rest of my life. And, um, but, but again, again, going back to depression, I've dealt with depression most of my life since I was five or six years old. So uh, I know that it can be done, but at least um, I'm aware of my, of my own capacity at the moment to know that, you know, um, I'm not dealing with it as well as I can or could, but I, I can't at the moment, but I know that I will build as time goes by because nothing is going to change that. It's like, you know, I've had well-meaning friends say to me, you know, he should get 30 years. Well, you know, he should, he should be, you know, incarcerated, if you like, put in jail for the rest of his life. But having said that, that's not going to bring Liam back. It's not going to change the grief. It doesn't matter whether he gets three years or 300. Yeah. You know. So anyway, um, myself and the children, he's, you know, his brothers and sister and his mum and, you know, the relatives as they go out. Because you have a very tight-knit family because you were a single dad yeah. for a very long time and you have a, you have a very tight-knit family as well, don't you? Yeah, the kids were um, extremely, and are, um, but right up until um, the four of them were, you know, like, yeah. I mean, I, I don't imagine that, you know, all siblings, my brother and I had a had a, a loving relationship, but we were never able to bond. Like, I adored him. I, I you know, loved him. But because we got off to that, that less than ideal start, yep. you know, because Colin did uh, favour him and he was his golden haired boy and he was nothing like my mother in appearance, um, which is something I think uh, plays a part. Yep. Um, uh, he, uh, but yeah, it was a different relationship. Um, and then when Colin abandoned us uh, all together, um, I was left to father um, 
my younger brother and it, which I did. And I mean, I, I remember I went to Coburg Tech, right, as a secondary school. And, um, and my brother followed, you know, years later. And, um, and I remember I took him, I went, when it was father and son night. Yeah. He, he had no one. So yeah, you took him yourself. His older brother, and, and I've turned up with him. And of course, you know, I knew most of the teachers because they taught me. Yeah. And um, have, they have they recovered from teaching you yet, or are they still? <laughs> <like teaching guys? laughs> I don't know. And I'm, I, I have made my apologies. Because, <laughs> um, um, but you know, I, I wasn't. I wasn't as, as demonstratively um, um, a troublesome as some boys in our school. Because, you know, Pasco Bay was a pretty tough place to grow up in. And um, so there was lots of gangs in the school and they, a lot of the, the leaders of the gangs were, were from known families that, you know, like, like one of my best mates at school, um, his family, his father, uh, uh, drove long distance uh, semis. Yep. Um, so I've loved big trucks since a very, very early age. But he also had a tow truck company. And um, his two sons, two, the two elder sons, uh, drove uh, trucks for him. Uh, but so um, I, I made a, a real good mate, which is what happens with the little blokes a lot is that they gravitate towards, or even bigger blokes that become protective. Right? So yeah. one of my one of my best mates, um, and he was um, because he came from this really rough family, and they were known like in the area to be like, yeah. well, you've got to stay away from them because they're you yeah. know they're pretty. Yeah. I mean, he's a tow truck driver, you know, like yeah. there was um, you know tow truck wars in Melbourne were famous for years, <laughs> and um, you know, I mean. People were you know, shot, killed, and a lot of guys were, you know, had their trucks burnt, and all this kind of shit was going on when I was a teenager. So, um, you know, anyway, I um, uh, there was there was guys like him uh, that were notorious in the school for, you know, being the, the so they took the attention away from the kids that were dysfunctional, but really didn't sort of like pop up on the radar that often. I mean, you know, my absenteeism was put down to the fact that I was, I was bronchial as a kid. Yeah. Um, so I was allowed to take extended like two weeks, you know, off every now and again. And, um, you know, just say, well, you know, I, I had a debate. I mean, I had pneumonia twice. As a kid. I mean, I was always, every winter I was, you know, I got bronchitis and pleurisy. Yeah, and I was pretty sickly in that way, which is um, um, see again, you know, it's one of the things that um, uh, Colin did for me. He he taught me to swim uh, because the, the doctor said, well, he should learn to swim, so they help his asthma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, and uh, so you know, like in other words, he he was doing the right thing in a sense. But uh, so yeah, I learned to swim, but I I learned to um, uh, you know, try and deal with this yearly occurrence of being crook. So anyway, what I'm saying is that um, I was able to take periods of time off school where I'd just go and, you know, yeah, spend days in the park, you know, like whatever. So, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't, um, 
I wasn't on the top 10 list of the worst behaved blokes at the school. But then again, that came COVID, later. That came later. Well, well, that, yeah, it came, it came out later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but at COVID Tech, you know, I, there was, you know, and I've run into a few of them over the years. Um, blokes just walk up to me at a, at, a, at a meeting where I'm talking or at a gig and say, G'day, I'm blah, blah. And I recognise the name, you know. And, uh, and I just think, you know, yeah, you, I said, how did you end up? Go, oh, well, you know, I went in the army and blah, blah, that straightened me out and blah, blah, blah. Or a couple of them actually went into the police force. Um, and, uh, yeah, so. And rock star. Yeah. Yeah, that was the point, you know. There was, um, when I left school, I did a apprenticeship as a fitter, fitter and turner. And after the first couple of years, I saved enough money to buy a motorcycle and I bought a motorcycle and I wanted to become you know, Marlon Brando. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that didn't, that didn't work out for me because, you know, at the end of the day, nobody likes to get beat up that often. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not wrong. So, mate, childhood abuse, rough adolescence, trying to find yourself inside of that. Um, you've lost uh, most of your bandmates, original bandmates to cancer at some point or another. You've <clears throat> lost your son. Yet inside of all of that, not only are you still standing, not only are you still, you know, standing here saying that you're a stronger person for everything that's happened, you're still giving back as well. Like you're recognised in the Australian community as a man who, and you've actually been publicly recognised for your service to Australia and the things mm. that you've done for, mm. in particular, the Australian youth. Do you mm. find that, giving back as much as you do, that's a way for you to sort of balance your history? Yeah, I, I've, I've come to grips with the wisdom of it in, you know, like when I say in my adulthood. So somewhere in my, like between my 30s and, and 40s, and God, that's a long time ago. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, I'm in my early 70s now. I'm 72, so... Um, it, it was a thing I was taught by my mum and I didn't realise in those days, as, as most kids don't. And then to give the, back? You were taught by your mum to give back? The, yeah, mum so was, you know, devoutly Christian. Yep. And um, she was always, and, and as, bad, as bad as I thought she had it, and I'm, you know, I was witness to it, um, as bad as I thought she had it, she never, never became a victim. She didn't allow herself the victim mentality. She always used to say, it's part of God's plan, which to this day, I don't understand because <laughs> I, I, I don't understand her view of the fact that it was God's plan, right? So she saw her God as like, well, you know, for some reason I've got to suffer. Well, no, it's not about that, mum. It's just, that's life, right? It's got nothing to do with God. It's just life. Yeah. Life's meant to be hard to teach you to be strong. And, um, and and that's God's wisdom, but God's not a judgmental being. It just is a, you know, it is, you know, I'm actually, God I'm actually, is. I'm actually going to steal that quote. Life's meant to be hard to make you strong. I'm, I'm stealing that. <laughs> well, you know, it's a wisdom that sort of appeared to me one night, you know, like, you know, I'm just saying it's in a dream. But yeah, I mean, when, when I've questioned over my life, why me? And I think, well, the only logical answer I can come up with is like, if, 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 if that stuff happened to me that made me angry and I am now angry Anderson, then okay, I couldn't, I couldn't have got this way any other way. 
So that's the explanation for that, right? Nailed so it. nailed it. And the reason that the reason that, that I that I life keeps challenging me, as it does all of us, is because life wants me to be strong. Life wants me to be a better man. Life wants me to be a better father, a better partner, a better you know, like if I hadn't seen that violence, well, you see, I could have gone, I could have gone away some blokes do as they follow suit yep or i could have done what i must have done sometime when i was very young made a conscious decision like this is not right this is wrong what's happening to my mother so i'm never going to repeat that because you know i've never been violent towards uh, women never would be um so the thing about it is i, I think you know at the end of the day, and I, and I do say this when I do public speaking, am I unhappy with who I am? No. Um, I'm very happy with who I am. I'm very happy about um, the way that, you know, every day for me is a struggle. And I'm not looking for sympathy. It's just a pure fact. Yep. Um, my marriage was a struggle. My my me being a father has always been a struggle. The boys live here. Um, and I was grateful for the fact that, you know, uh, up until uh, we lost Liam, I had the three of them here for a couple of years. And they were all, the great part of that experience was that <clears throat> as, their, as their father, I was able to see them as men. I'd raise them from babies into into adolescence you know and then there was a period where like you can't live like that in my house my yeah. in your home so if you have so much disrespect you go and make your own way and as harsh as that may be that's what i believe right so yep. you know, i agree tough, tough medicine like so you can't not work you can't sit at home and smoke and take fucking drugs and um and and just be a you know a shithead and talk yeah. to me badly. Yeah. There's no respect here. Um so go make your own, go and make some mistakes and then come back in some and, and they all did. And suffice yeah. to say, um why is it for like it? I said, that last couple of years I had the the three of them here and we were able to well, we were able to talk about all this stuff because well, they were well, grown now. More like and they mates. were men. You find it yeah, they were they were young men. Yeah, you know, and they, you know, they were experiencing what it was like to intellectualize the process, but live the process, and you know, and I'd always brought them up to believe in the spiritual aspects of life or of the person, the being, and um, so they they were starting to value that then, and and it was amazing to now that of course you know that we've got a well, we've all got to, as a family, deal with um, uh, losing Liam. Um, that's, that's uh, you know, that's a process we're dealing with together. You feel it's made so you, do you feel it's made you stronger as a family? That through every, everything we've gone through as a family has made us stronger. And it's like Roxy, you know, like through her own their mum, um, the, the children's mother, is um, 
she's she's a deeply troubled person, deeply damaged as a child. In fact, what she went through, no no young woman should go through. No young child should go through. Um, so her her the fact that she struggled, um, a lot of the role of um, uh, mothering went to Roxy. Yeah. And that's how the, Roxy and the three boys become, like I say, you know, the, the hardship they endured as siblings um, made them fiercely loyal um, to the people where, that I know that have got wonderful relationships with their kids. And they'll be at our place at a barbecue and I go, Jesus, your kids are tight. Jesus, your kids are so solid, aren't they? Like, and their kids aren't lacking that, but their kids haven't had to have gone through what my kids have gone through. So other parents are actually seeing a depth, if you like, or a breadth of something. It does, it's not lacking in their children. Like they're lacking, their children are loving, good kids, they've done well at school, and they've had seemingly a, not trouble. No one has a trouble-free life, but they haven't done. Their kids haven't done as hard as, as my kids. So it hasn't. I think what I'm trying to say is that it's given them a toughness, but it hasn't made them hard. Yeah. Okay. Not not hard in the sense. Um, like jaded, I've known some hard guys in my bitter. life. Yeah. They're not jaded and bitter at life. They've just no. been, they've just no. learnt from the hardship that they've yeah. had and grown from. Yeah. Them. Yeah. And, and it's 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 given them a resilience and a strength, awesome. um, which as a dad, you know, when we're sitting around at barbecues and, you know, they're all in, interacting with one another and my friends and their friends and I just sit back and think, they're doing real good. They're doing real good. And you know who that's a credit to, don't you? <laughs> no, you got you got to own it, mate. You got to own it. Hey, I, I take some credit. Yeah, I will. Yeah. Awesome. But they've they've um, they have so supported me in this last year and a bit. Um. Yeah, they've got me through this to this to this point, and they're there. They're rock solid. I'd say. So even in the so worst, it's it's, it's, the worst it's time, made it bearable. Lucky man, it's made it bearable. Yeah, and and that's it's at the moment, <clears throat> and I really can't talk about it anymore. But <clears throat> no, that's fine. That's fine. I'm just bearing up, which means it's bearable. It's just bearable. Yeah. Uh, so I know that the worst time is to come. And I'm trying as best I can to prepare for it. Yep. Anyway. Mate, what we're going to do is, uh, before we uh, wrap it up... We're not going to talk about coronavirus? Fuck <laughs> <laughs> corona. <laughs> Another day. No, I'm done with corona. Fuck corona. Really? Yeah, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit over it as well. But uh, Well, you've been in quarantine for 14 days. So for those who don't know, Angry just got back from uh, well, half a tour in Europe before it got cut short. And he's had to, had to be in self-isolation and quarantine for the last 14 days. <laughs> yeah, actually, um, well, we got back on the 18th. Now, strictly speaking, you can't... You can't can't count the day you get back, so it starts from the next day. 
And so it was only last week. Uh, I've only been like, and it was really weird. I would say it was really weird because um, I actually walked to the top of the driveway and um, up until then for the two weeks, I'd walk up there and I'd step over the boundary, which you're not supposed to do, but the, the <laughs> post box just outside the, so I'd get the mail and come back down. And <laughs> and if the dogs, you know, it was so funny. And I like when, one morning I walked up there and um, uh, the dog, I said to the, the dogs, I walked out the back uh, and walked up the sideway through the garden. And um, so the dogs were out there, right? And, my old dog, Boof, and uh, my bitch, Rosie. And um, I don't know why they didn't twig because I didn't put the harnesses and get the leads out. Yeah. But I just opened the gate and they followed me up the driveway, right? We get up to the driveway and they both walked to the top of the driveway and I'm starting to walk back. And I could I could tell, and I turned around, I said, come on, let's go. Like, and they've looked, they, they both looked at me and they've looked at, they actually looked at one another and I was like, what the fuck is he doing? He's kind of like, <laughs> this isn't a are, walk. We, are we going for a walk? Yeah. And it was like, so that's been a, it's been a real breakthrough, uh, being able to walk the dogs again. And uh, a little luxury day, uh, but, but just, just going out and getting the car. And that was only two weeks, you know, it's like, but yeah, it's all good. Um, uh, we're all, you know, everyone in the band, um, is fine. Awesome. No, uh, no problem. Um, so yeah, we. Uh, I was about to say uh, life goes on norm is normal, but you know what? To find the new normal, normal anymore. <laughs> yeah, really. I, I, you know, I don't want to. You know, like you said, you don't want to go into it. But like, Kenny Rogers had the right idea, mate. He knew when to fold him. <laughs> well, he certainly did, and he wrote about it prophetically many years ago. But I think you um, know, I'm out of here. <laughs> I think one of the things that we've got to. One of the things that we've got to adjust to, and it's, yet again, it's another thing we've got to deal with, is, um, well, okay, I don't think things are going to be as bad as some people suggest they may be, but um, it's a different ball game now. It really is. You know, yeah. So, that, again, uh, something's been forced on us. And th this will be the telling, you know. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, uh, the, the real ugly part of it where... You know, people have done really ugly things to one another, to other people. Oh, yeah, but it's all about the corona. Yeah, don't make excuses. Yeah. You know, ugly is as ugly as ugly does. Yeah. Just the bogan fighting over toilet paper. That's the end of it. Flames well, and... yeah, but yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and doing things like, you know, you know, like I, I just, I remember saying to my son the other day, I said, you know, because we were walking, we were, this is only my, only my second time outside the house in two weeks. And I said, geez, I hope we don't come across in, like anything like that. I said, because if I saw, let alone if someone spat on me, yeah, male or female, right, I'd, I'd just knock them to the ground. But Because you don't take a liberty like that. Yeah. You just don't do that, right? But if I saw someone doing that, like I've seen stuff on Facebook, you know, and people are filming it, but not doing anything about it. Anything to stop it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not like that. I can't, I couldn't stand by and watch someone treat someone badly like that. Yeah. I'd have to step in and go like, nah, that's wrong. Angry would come out. 
angry is just bubbling right below the surface. <laughs> and that's and it's another thing too, it's like the recovering alcoholic, you know, you're Always never free there. of it. It's you're never way. free of it. You are, I mean, yeah. every now and again, poo, it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's like dealing with the black dog. It's like um, every now and again, something happens and, and, and I'm just about to pull the trigger or the trigger's about to be pulled. And, and sometimes, to give myself credit, I like it's, it goes right to there and I'm just about to, and I go, whoa, and I'll pull it up. Get a hold of it. Yeah. Because secret, and same secret dealing with depression and anxiety, which are two entirely different things, but dealing with uh, you know a, a mental disorder, an emotional stroke mental disorder, and depression and anxiety are manifestations of those. You know, the individual, and this is where you have to do this, brothers and sisters, you have to realise that you are the only one that can control that situation. And if you don't step in to control it, nobody else. Nobody you know, like, you. I, I can modify your behaviour if you behave badly. You should come and but work I, with us, mate. You can, you can be one of our coaches. That's exactly, that's exactly where we start with it. Nobody's coming to save you. You've got to do it yourself. The, and, and, the, and the thing it is, and I will not say, and I will not, you know, um, I know that I've probably put a few people off, particularly when I've talked at schools. And I said that, you know, the worst thing that you can allow yourself to believe is, oh, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm a victim. You know, yes, there is, you know. And like, like when I got bullied at school um, and I, you know, I was bullied because my, my, the reputation, everyone knew about my father and he was a lunatic and a, you know, a violent man. And um, and they you know they all thought that he was uh, mentally insane, which it turned out to be. But that's another story. But so I got bullied for that. I got bullied for being a little you know kind of thing. You know the fact that my mother was dark, whatever. Um, and so you know one of the great things about going to Coburg Tech, uh, if 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 the bullying it became physical, the teachers would grab the two antagonists. Take them into the gym, put the boxing gloves on them, and say, "Righto, um, we're going to like three yeah, minute, three one minute rounds or whatever." And whoever came out, and then you took the gloves off, you shook hands, you go, "Righto, no more of this." And nine times out of ten, it stopped there. Yeah. And um, uh, you know, but in, in those days, you didn't. We were told, we were taught, if you like, or encouraged. It, don't cop bullying, you know, because you are you only get bullied because you allow it to happen. Now you may face up to the bully and you may get snotted, but he's learnt you're not you're not going to just get walked over. Yeah, right. So you, he's going you're going to stand up to him, right? So and I remember um, again uh, a bigger mate of mine. You know, he took on a bully for me because I'd, I'd copped a couple of hidings because I wouldn't put up with this bullying. And this, this bloke was bigger than me and he got it over me. So a bigger mate of mine uh, chose a, they were playing handball actually, and he, he chose to, you know, let this escalate into a physical. And then he gave this guy a, a hell of a hide. And while he, while he was picking him up off the ground, he said, that's for the mouse. You know, that's for... <laughs> He said, so don't, you know, so, and, and the guy dropped off. But what I mean is it was a different mindset. We didn't, 
we were taught to deal with uh, life in a, in a reality sense. You know, we didn't go to a quiet space or a safe space and sit down and discuss it and, you know, blah, blah, blah. We were, we were allowed, and I use that word advisedly, we were allowed to work it out, um, you know, the way kids uh, should be able to. Learn. I mean, you know, I don't prescribe to these days. I mean, you know, kids carry knives to school, so it's a different ball game. Yeah. But the attitude was, uh, you know, that you have to deal with life. Yeah. You can't protect yourself from it. You can't shelter yourself from it. And we shouldn't be doing that with kids in school um, just because they're suffering anxiety and or depression, which I said are two entirely different things. Um, then we must encourage them not to uh, take shelter in their weakness, but to find their strength. Yeah. In other words, we can't allow them to believe that they can't beat this. We've got to say, within you is an angry, is an angry, <laughs> no, no, I don't mean, in, in you is a, an angry, strong person, you know, like a person who can, you can have get ang angry over the injustice right. of what you might be doing. And, and the thing is, it's like, you can't blame kids for being confused about these things because they're fed so much negativity. So if you feed, you grow with what you're fed. Yeah. So if you're fed negativity, you grow negatively. Social media's if got to be hard to blame that. If you, exactly. If you reinforce, now where I went to school, teachers were always pushing us, play sport, go to the gym, do this, do that. But it was male, very masculine. And it was, you know, and they, they were trying to get us to discover our strengths. Yeah. You know, I love playing football, right? And I remember at, at the end of second term, second year, um, I said to my football coach, um, I'm not going to play next year. And he said, why? And I said, because everyone's getting bigger and I'm getting knocked, the, you know, flat. And, um, you know, Team A had played Team B, right? And then we'd play competition with the schools, other schools. And I said, you know, because I used to play Rover or sometimes I played uh, full forward and uh, sometimes other positions, but mainly Rover. And, um, you know, they'd, they'd target me. And he said, um, well, you just got to find that you're tougher. He said, so if they knock you down, just get up. Yep. He said, and after a while, I'll get sick of knocking you down. That part wasn't actually true. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for a big dramatic moment there. You're like, you know what? It fucking worked. But <laughs> yeah, really. No, it yeah. worked because I kept getting up. Yep. Knock down I seven times, stand up eight. I, I got up every time. They never got tired of knocking me down. That's the part that wasn't true. <laughs> Hundred percent. But I, you know, like I remember, um, uh, Colin was a um, he's a jockey, and one of the things that he he did because you know jockeys need upper body strength, right, to hold a horse, or you know, some of the big horses that he rode were big horses. So he was a, a an amateur boxer. He had like um, uh, amateur fights, so he was very very good with his fists, and um, and he had a violence in him which was uh, and that's for another day but that was beaten into him by his father his father was a terrible terrible man generational 
Yeah, yeah. And he was a violent, violent man. And he was bad. He was a bad guy, a bad man. If there's one, you know, I don't think there's too, it's like um, the, the old saying, there's no such thing as a truly bad, bad boy. Well, I think if you're allowed to, you know, get to manhood and you still have that, you can probably turn into a bad man. I've known a couple. Yeah. And Jack was one of them. I, I mean, I, in, in latter years, I, I learned to understand Colin. I don't know if I ever quite forgave him, but, you know, I let it go. Did you ever find a level of peace at any point in time? Oh, yeah. For many, many years as a youngster, I, you know, I plotted his death. Um, I, I was waiting until I got old enough. Because that's another thing he taught me too. Um, he taught me to ride a bike. He taught me to fish. He taught me to swim. He taught me to box. Um, well, he didn't teach me very well. He just taught me, you know, uh, that violence wasn't something I enjoyed because, you know, he would... But, you know, and I, and I say this during public speaking, when he was teaching me to the box, he, always, he would always knock me down and he would always demand that I get up. Yep. Um, and so he was inadvertently teaching me a very valuable lesson. When you get knocked down, you get up. You don't stay there. So anyway, that's another story. But um, yeah, he um, he uh, he taught me to shoot. So from a very very early age, I owned uh, my own weapons, which is why I've always owned uh, uh, weapons, rifles. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So I. I plotted I, I just was waiting until I was sort of like in my mid to late teens and I thought well if it's still this is still happening uh, I'll put an end to it but uh you know that's that's the sort of emotional you know delusional turmoil that a very young person yeah man or woman will will go through until you get to a point where you think well that's not the solution did you, ever desperation. Talk, did you ever challenge him or talk to him about it? Did you ever call Oh, him? yeah, yeah. The first time I ever got knocked out, uh, <laughs> Colin, my biological father, knocked me out. I remember I, I, um, he'd been away for some time, like months, and he used to go away. Because when he uh, eventually he got barred from riding and he wasn't allowed to, he lost his licence for bad behaviour. So what he used to do as a, as a jockey, as as jockeys used to do um he'd he'd go droving because he was a horseman you know he was a, a very skilled horseman and um so when he wasn't uh, you know out of season um he would wrangle horses and um uh he used to uh wrangle horses from the top end like he told me stories uh when he'd come home um I remember he came home and um, one time, and, and he always had saddles, you know, he was a jockey. Yeah. But I remember, you know, I went into the shed one time and there was a saddle there and it wasn't a normal saddle. It was an American saddle right, with a roping horn and, and it had this, this big um, leather, uh, like, a, like a holster. And I remember saying to him, I said, what's that for, Dad? And he said, uh, oh, well, he said, he pulled out a... Uh, um, it was a, uh, a 30325 cut down 303 uh, jungle into a jungle carbine, yeah. Which they which they cut the 303 down 
for when the troops started to fight in jungles, I think it's Borneo or somewhere like that. And um, he used to shoot ferals, and and they would this this the rifle was held in this uh, like a big holster. Yeah, yep, yep. With a swivel, yep. and it was wound around the pommel, and they would ride up beside the buffalo or the horse or you know the camel or whatever they were shooting wild donkeys pigs you know whatever and and they would be able to be riding and they would be able to sit like ride ride right up beside the whatever it was and just bang you know be able to hit them somewhere so they could get a heart or a lung shot um you know so they could you know have a kill so um yeah, anyway, like, that's why I got distracted. But uh, one of the times that I came home and um, uh, I realised that he was there. And um, so I, I got off my bike and I was walking up the driveway and I could hear mum and, uh, and she was crying and she was hysterical. And so I knew what was happening. So I've flown in round the back, I come in the back door into the kitchen and I just remember her pleading with him and, 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 you know, he, he was standing in front of her and he, he was, had his hands like that. And I just remember I flew in between him and I threw my hands up and I think I might've even thrown one. And then the next thing I wake up, I'm on the couch yeah. and the doctor's there and a couple of the neighbors and he's gone, you know, I had a, <laughs> like a yeah. and I like this. Actually, the other eye, but um, and uh, yeah, and they said um, he'd knocked me out. So the first time I'd actually been was knocked out at the hands of my own biological father. So that was that was definitely a moment. Absolutely, one of many. One of too many. Yeah. One of too many. Yeah. So with everything that you've been through, we have, uh, we've, obviously we've got a lot of followers who are battling their own demons. We have a lot of followers, you know, battling mental health, depression, anxiety, PTSD. If you could give one piece of advice to anybody out there who's listening to this, who is currently fighting their own battle with the black dog, what would that be? What would be your number one piece of advice for people who are out there fighting the, uh, the hard fight at the moment? Well, apart from, you know, the cliche stuff that we're supposed to say, which is true, yep. is that you're not in this alone. You don't have to be in this alone. But if you choose to be, um, that's a choice. In fact, all of this, all about what we've talked about, and it's about choices. And some choices are made for us. You know, I didn't ask to be abused as a kid. I didn't, you know... Uh, Asked to have to deal with the loss of, of one of my children. I, they're not asked, they're, but they're things that are thrust upon us. But there's a choice you make uh, that we make, we all make. Do I let this or allow this to define me, or do I take charge? Do I take back my life, and I'll define me? Perfect. And and. Um, there's a moment where that reality hopefully comes to, and it's usually in the most desperate of moments, which is there's a wisdom to that. But the thing is, there is a wisdom. It is true. 
and it, 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 it is the ultimate truth. And there's no such thing as an experience wasted. It doesn't matter how much we've suffered or how much we are going to or what we have to endure, none of it's wasted. None of it happens by accidents. It's not like they written it out before us, but our lives are what our lives are. And the purpose, I believe, is pain is our greatest teacher. I've been saying that from the stage for as long as I can remember. It's our greatest teacher. It's our constant companion. We're not going to have a life without it. It's how we deal with it. And the thing about it is, even in my darkest times and this year, this last year and a bit, I've seen some darkness that I never thought I would see. I know I'm better than that. I know I'm bigger than that. I know I'm stronger than that. And it can't and won't, and I won't allow it to define me. Yeah. I'll tell you who I am. And I, and I, and I think that, uh, we teach more by example than we ever do by instruction. And so I think it's how you live your life. So, you know, life's tough. So what? I'm alive. Beautiful. I wrote that once in a song. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Once again, art imitates life. Yeah. Life imitates art. It's one of the two. Yeah. Maybe yeah. a little from column A, a little from column B. Yeah. Mate, angry uh, from myself, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your, your brutal honesty and your truth. Um, on behalf of everybody who's listening and on behalf of all Australians, really, you really are you know, one of the last few true Aussie icons that we have, brother. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And I really mm. appreciate everything that you've shared with us today. And I truly hope that anybody who's listening can take something away from that from their own experiences. Thank you, mate. Thank you. Appreciate no it. Well. No, we, we appreciate you, brother. We appreciate no, you. No, no workers, mate. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I mean, the coronavirus aside, um, we are all of us in this together. And um, I just want you to believe that because I know it's true. Yep. Thank you very much, brother. It's much appreciated. No workers. Take care, mate. All right, brother.